This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love. Well, if you're new today, we are in the midst of a study of Isaiah, and we have come to Isaiah 49 today. So if you'd open your Bibles to the 49th chapter of the book of Isaiah. We're talking about the servant who brings salvation. So one of the things that we see in Isaiah are four servant songs. And these are are parts of the book where uh, they are portraits of Christ that just shine forth so powerfully. And to today we come to the second servant song in Isaiah. It's, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the servant. He is the suffering servant who dies on our behalf. And so this is a great text to prepare us for the Lord's Supper later in our service as you, you came in. Uh, hopefully you received the elements, if you did not, make sure you procure them uh, before the end of the service. We have, we have plenty of them if you desire to take part in it later on. But Isaiah 49 is a beautiful text to, to prepare us for that. And so it's talking about the servant who brings salvation. So let's look at Isaiah 49. I invite you to follow along um, with me. And let's begin with... Um, with verse 1. Coast and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words Like a sharp sword, he hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. Go to verse 6. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One says, to the one who is despised, to the one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers. Kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to dig into your word right now, we pray that you would give us hearts that are eager, that have a hunger and a thirst for you. Lord, Lord, give us a desire for 
your word right now. Clear our minds of anything that could distract. And just give us open, humble, vulnerable, transparent hearts to receive what you have for us in your word. And we pray that you would impart it to us by the power of your spirit through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Tim Mackey is a a Bible scholar who works with the Bible Project. That's a great website. I commend it to you, the Bible Project. It's got great videos about that help you understand Scripture better, great Bible reading plans and things like that, the Bible Project. But Tim Mackey works with the Bible Project. And for a period of his life, he lived in Jerusalem and he was studying at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he didn't have any Thursday classes. And so on Thursdays, he and his wife Jessica would, would go around to different sites around Israel and Jerusalem, and they would see different things. And on one particular Thursday, he and Jessica wandered up the Mount of Olives to the church of the Paternoster. Paternoster in Latin means our Father, the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. And at this church, this beautiful courtyard, and the courtyard is surrounded by colonnade walkways. And along these walkways, you walk along, and there are mosaics of the Lord's Prayer in 140 different languages. And so on this particular day, there were busloads of Christian pilgrims that were pulling up, and there was a busload of Koreans, and then a busload of, of Africans and, and others. And so you had all these hundreds of people from around the world, these Christian pilgrims that were milling around this courtyard, and they were walking up and down these walkways looking at these mosaics of the Lord's Prayer, and they would find the mosaic that had the Lord's Prayer in their language, and then they would gather and they would say the Lord's Prayer together. So you had like this beautiful sound of all these believers from around the world saying the Lord's Prayer in their language. And Tim said, you know, I was just blown away in that moment, afresh and anew, that, you know, I am part of a worldwide family. And that's, that's where we begin here in Isaiah 49, because we see the servant's worldwide mission. Look at verse 1. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. So once again, we see this term coasts and islands. If you've been a part of our study of Isaiah, you see this is not new. It's very familiar in Isaiah. Coasts and islands, and whenever you see that, it's talking about people who live in, in distant places, distant shores, who do not know God. Places where the name of Jesus is not known. Places where the gospel has not been heard. Well, Jesus cares about these people. God has a heart for these people. The the servant's mission. Remember, Jesus is a suffering servant. His, His heart is that all peoples would know him. That is his mission. You know, sometimes 
um, businesses have a, a, a mission statement. Um, I like Chick-fil-A's. You can see it on the, on the wall of those restaurants. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that God has entrusted to us, to have a positive influence of all, on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Now, our church has a mission statement. It's to glorify Christ by making disciples who make disciples in our community and around the world. And Jesus, in Luke 19.10, gives us what amounts to his personal mission statement. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And not just the lost of Israel, but lost people of every tribe and tongue. That is his heart. God's heart is Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. God's heart is that people from every tribe and tongue would know him and rejoice in him. That joyous praises to God would resound from every coast and island, every distant shore, every city, every village, every home. The application for us is obvious. If, If he's on a worldwide mission and we're his followers... That means that he's called us to a worldwide mission. So we see the servant's worldwide mission. We also see here the servant's eternal generation. The servant's eternal generation. Look at the latter part of verse 1. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. So when we think about Jesus... In, in Mary's womb, we're, we're thinking about the incarnation, right? We're thinking about the, the, the birth of, of Christ. But it says here that the Lord called me before I was born. <laughs> Jesus did not have his beginning at his birth. In fact, He didn't have a beginning at all, really. He was there in the beginning. He is eternal. In John chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, the Bible says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The great church father and defender of the Trinity, Athanasius, once said this, if the Son is not eternally the Son, then the Father is not eternally the Father. But see, the Father has always been the Father. (laughs) There has never been a time when the Father was not the Father. There was never a time when Jesus was not the Son. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have eternally been loving one another. Their love for one another has always been giving and outgoing as they related to one another. That is who our God is. And so listen, it is totally consistent with the character of that God to create 
you and me and to desire to be in a relationship with you and me. Because that's the kind of God that he is. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis has two demons writing to one another. And in this particular part, these demons are writing to one another and they are contrasting who, who they are with who God is. And they say this, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. That's who God is, right? And so God from all eternity, within the persons of the Trinity, there has been love. There has been a sharing of love, an an outgoing, an overflowing of love. So listen, it is consistent with the character of a triune God like that to create human beings and to desire to be in relationship with them, a love relationship with them. Now this is very, very different you know, than what we see in, in, in non-Trinitarian religions like, like Islam. In, in Islam, Allah is solitary, right? They don't believe in the Trinity at all. Militantly anti-Trinitarian. I was talking this week with a friend who has spent most of his adult life living in, in an Islamic country. And he has spent decades loving Muslim people and, and, and talking to Muslim people about faith. And we were talking about this very thing. And he, he shared with me this week, he said, you know, in all of my years, you know, I, I, hear, I, hear, I hear Muslim people talk about serving God, obeying God, worshiping God, fearing God. I do not hear them talk about loving God or God loving them because the concept of, 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 of Allah loving them and desiring to be in a relationship with them is just not a category. It's not even a category that they think of. That is not the case with us and that's because God is triune. From all eternity, there has been love within the persons of the Trinity, outgoing, flowing love towards one another. And so it's consistent with God's character that he would not only create us, but desire a relationship of love with us. That's the difference that the Trinity makes. Now let's look at um, the latter part of verse 1 again. The servant says, The Lord called me before I was born. Let's talk about eternal generation. That's a term that, that theologians use to express the fact that, that Jesus is eternal. There was never a time when he was not He's not made, he's not created, but yet he comes from 
the Father. As we affirmed in the Nicene Creed, he is, he is begotten of the Father. He's begotten, not made. We saw earlier in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So Jesus is eternal. He's eternally begotten of the Father. He is not in the made category. He's not created. He is, he is, he, but, but yet he comes from the Father. He's begotten, not made. So how do we, what is, what is that, how did that happen? How did that happen? And, and here we come to something that humbles us. Right? This is meant to humble us. Um, we come to something that is so deep that it's beyond our finite minds to conceive. I love what the church father and another great defender of the Trinity, Gregory of Nazianzus, once said. How was the son begotten? I repeat the question in indignation. <laughs> the begetting of God must be honored by silence. It is a great thing for you to learn that he was begotten. But the manner of his generation, we will not admit that even angels can conceive, much less you. <laughs> Shall I tell you how it was? It was in a manner known to the Father who begat and to the Son who was begotten. Anything more than this is hidden by a cloud and escapes your dim sight. This humbles us, right? We, we just let Scripture speak. Again, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And here in John 1, 3, we see something else about Jesus. Not only is he eternal, not only was he there in the beginning, but we learn that that. Jesus was the Father's agent in creating the world. And not only was the Son the Father's agent in creating the world, he is also his agent in bringing about new creation. New creation to the sin-sick world. And that's the third thing that we see here in Isaiah 49, the servant's redemptive vocation. The servant's redemptive vocation. Let's look at verse 2. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. So think about all of that time from eternity past before the incarnation, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The sun was like a, a quiver that was hidden in, in the, uh, like an arrow that was hidden in the quiver of his father, that the father pulls out and shoots forth into the world at just the right time. The father pulls this arrow out of his quiver, shoots him 
on this redemptive mission into the world, and the world doesn't know him. He's born, he's born in Bethlehem, and the world doesn't know who he is, let alone that he has come to transform the world, to redeem the world. Look at verse three. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now this is fascinating because it identifies the servant with Israel. What's up with that? So think about it. Think about Israel's vocation. What is Israel's vocation and, and calling? I've been reading through Genesis devotionally. And five times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 28, you see the same phrase. When God talks about Israel, he says, I have, I have, I have called you to bless all peoples. He says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was Israel's vocation, Israel's calling, to be a light to the rest of the nation. God says, I'm going to create this special people, and the reason that I'm going to do that is because through you, I'm going to bless all peoples. But what you see as the Old Testament plays out is that Israel fails to do that. Israel itself turns away from God. So rather than being the light to the nations that God had called them to be, they themselves turn away from God. Does that mean that God's promise to bless the world through Israel, to bless all peoples through this one people, does it mean that his, his promises are, fail? No. Because what does God do? God raises up the servant, Jesus. God sends forth his son, the suffering servant, and he comes from where? Through Israel. And so God's promise to bless all peoples through Israel stands because God sends forth his servant through Israel and Jesus is the servant who does not fail. Jesus becomes the Israel who will glorify God. That's what we see here in verse 3. He becomes Israel in whom I will be glorified. So when you get to the Gospels and you see Jesus doing things like choosing 12 disciples, why does he do that? Is 12 a random number? No. There are 12 tribes of Israel. When you see him feeding thousands and thousands of people with five loaves and two fish and they pick up 12 basketfuls afterwards, 12 is not random. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has become the servant who will not fail. He is Israel in whom God will be glorified. Jesus has become the one who truly will be a light to all nations. All peoples will be blessed through him. Verse six, he says, it is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations 
to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So again, what is the application for us as Jesus' people? If the servant is a light to the nations, a light to the ends of the earth, what is the application for us as his followers? That's our mission. To, to bring his light and his salvation to all peoples, to the ends of the earth. So what does Jesus say to us on the day of Pentecost? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. Look at verse seven. This is what the Lord the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One says, to one who is despised, to one who is abhorred. Now here we learn something else about Jesus, the servant. He redeems through suffering. He redeems through suffering. He is one who is despised and abhorred. And later when we get to chapter 53 and we look at another of the servant songs about him, what does it say about him? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering. He is the servant who redeems through suffering. But through it all, God protects him. Verse eight, this is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. Throughout the Old Testament, God works through covenants. God's not just sort of ad-libbing as he goes along. God works through these covenants, which are agreements. But what do we see in the Old Testament? We see that people keep breaking the covenants. We keep breaking the covenants. So what does God do to redeem covenant breakers like you and me. The night before he goes to the cross, Jesus gathers his disciples and they break bread together and then he holds up a cup and what does he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus gives a new covenant for people like you and me who have broken the covenants. And that's all of us. Not a single one of us 
has trusted God as we should or treasured him as we should or obeyed him as we should. We have all fallen pitifully short. We are all sinners. We are all covenant breakers. And so God in his grace offers his son. He offers a new covenant through the blood of his son that if you will turn to his son and trust in him, then he receives you into this covenant by grace, by just sheer grace. We can't do anything to earn it. We don't deserve it. It comes when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and you trust in him and you rest in his finished work. God receives you into this new covenant. And this is what the table is all about. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. That he invites every believer to. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for it. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that we can enter into because you gave your son, because of his broken body, because of his blood shed on behalf of sinners like us. Lord, we, we, are, we are offered the opportunity to enter into this new covenant by grace through faith. Father, I pray for anyone who is here, anyone who is watching that is not in Christ. Father, I pray that right now they would see the love of Jesus for them. His blood shed for them on the cross. His, his body broken for them. His glorious resurrection. That we have a risen Savior and King that we don't have to do life alone that we're meant to do it with you in fellowship with you, in relationship with you. We thank you for your love. Father, I pray for, for anyone who's not in Christ that they would turn to Jesus and trust in him and rest in his finished work for them. His shed blood, his resurrection from the dead. Father, we pray that for all of us as we enter into this special time. Lord, your word tells us that this is a time for us to examine ourselves. If there are unconfessed sins in our lives, Lord, if there are relationships that need to be restored, if there are grudges that we harbor, if there are secret sins that we harbor, Lord, we, we pray that uh, if there's anything that is, is hindering our fellowship with you. Lord, give us the grace to, to turn from that. Father, we pray that you would, would use these next moments together as just a, a means of, of your grace in our lives, Lord, that uh, you would use it to to strengthen our faith that we would see Jesus as 
more beautiful, that we would be, you would create in us a deeper desire to know you and to, to make you known to others. Work in our lives now, we pray during this time. In Jesus' name. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.